0: I probably shouldn't, but I'll do it anyway. I was reflecting with the first, during the first service that some 10 years ago when you were kind enough to call me as your pastor, I discovered in a really keen way that my mind can drift while preaching. Your mind drifts while I'm preaching, right? No. Thank you for whoever said no. You're lying, but it's a good lie. And... I like it. The mind drifts. We can't help it. What you may not know is that even as people hear Bible preaching, the preacher's mind can drift too. They have all kinds of thoughts, such as, where is everybody? Or wow, there's a lot of people here today. Or man, it's hot up here. I wonder if everybody is as hot as I am (laughs) in their seat as I am behind this pulpit. And the thought that kept intruding into my mind in the early time of my pastorate here with you is I would look out across this auditorium, and you, many of you, most of you weren't here then, Uh, but we had an auditorium that had been beautiful and really, really well done at one time. It had been built so long ago it was in really bad repair, so… My Part of my Sunday morning routine, for instance, is I would walk through the room and pick up the broken pieces of tile that had given way during the week. And I'd see just this little, as my wife once called it and it hurt my feelings, this little dab of people <laughs> sitting in this big room in broken chairs with a ruined floor. And the thought that kept intruding was, I wonder if we'll make it. I wonder if I'll be part of a turnaround story, or I wonder if in about a year, because churches are gracious and they give you time to fail, (laughs) I wonder if they'll say, we've made a mistake, this isn't working, you know, take your unique ministry stylings and bless somebody else, (laughs) somewhere else. So, when I hear you sing the way you were just now, and when I think of your Faces and your lives, and the stories and the sacrifices that so many of you have made. Some of you are brand new, others of you were here all the way through that. You were here long, been here longer than I have. Clarice Burkholder uh, has been at 40 consecutive church business meetings, for instance. When I think of the grace it takes from someone like that that has seen those days of the pipe organ and the wool suit. And loved them, and I did too, and those were good days. And then lived through that moment of uncertainty. Maybe you weren't uncertain, I certainly was. And when I see all that God has done, I can only say thank you to Him and praise to Him. And thank you also as well for hearing from Jesus and hanging in there in tough times and turning your vision up to Jesus and out to the world because look what He is doing. He's not half done. I think we've just seen the very beginning, and I can't wait to see the rest of it. Seven o'clock, we'll tell you more. Now, that kind of thinking is what is saturating Paul's heart as he languishes in prison, probably in Rome addressing a church he started in the important Roman city of Philippi. They live as Roman citizens, though a colony. It's an unlikely place for a Christian church to ever find its roots, much less to give the flourishing fruit that it has. But now Paul is in prison, and he may be physically languishing, but he is spiritually thriving. And he wrote them a letter to give them perspective on his suffering, See, one of the things that haunted Paul, every time he suffered for his testimony for Jesus, another religious teacher, a false teacher, came right behind him and said, if Paul were telling you the truth, he wouldn't suffer the way he does. His suffering is a signature of his failure and his deceit. God is judging him and punishing him. That's why he's in continual trouble. And Paul, I think, is concerned that this Rather, new church, seeing its founder and its chief preacher and teacher, their spiritual father in prison, would begin to have fears about him and the fears for themselves and how their lives would go if they continued to follow Jesus as he had taught them to do. We're in Philippians chapter 1, and we've reached the second half. Beginning in verse 18, picking up from last week, Paul says that Jesus matters so much, this is a convicting thing. He says, I don't care who proclaims Christ, and I don't even care what their motives are. As long as they're presenting Jesus, I rejoice. And I told you last week, sometimes that's hard for people who care about doctrine and Bible teaching. We want all the dots to line up. We want the motives to be right, and certainly they should, and certainly that matters. But Paul says the message of Jesus, the good news is so extraordinary that it doesn't even matter if people are sincere or not, as long as they're actually presenting Jesus, I can rejoice. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now he turns his thoughts to himself and his situation in prison. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says, I know that this time in prison with your prayers, with the help of God, with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I will be saved from this moment. He uses the Greek word for salvation, and I think what Paul says here is, I am looking forward to being vindicated. I'm confident that I will come out of this prison, and more importantly, I think he's saying, at the end of my life, I think that all of this, I will be vindicated. I will seem to have been honest and truthful before God when he judges me. Look at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Let me tell you something about this sermon, lest you get discouraged by it. Have You ever been discouraged by a sermon? I've been discouraged by many sermons, mainly those I preach myself. Um, (laughs) Man, that didn't go well. That's not what I meant. Um, Should have prayed more about that one, okay? So, let me tell you on the front side about this passage. This is the letter of a spiritual parent. In our church, we envision discipleship as a family table where people are invited into the family of God, but they can't be into the family unless they experience what Jesus calls the new birth. They're born again. When people are born from their insensitivity and their their deadness to spiritual things, they're born again, they become? Babies, infants, newborns. If newborns are fed and cared for and nourished, they become little children. And little children are interactive in the family. They can start to help. They can start to support. But their primary characteristic is that they're self-centered. If you've forgotten that, I invite you to have lunch with the five-year-old. He will enjoy it (laughs) until something goes against him. And then he will collapse in on himself. And it'll be all about him and maybe getting the blue plate. Because his brother always gets the blue plate, and it's not fair. And there's great injustice in the world, and why can't I have the blue plate? That's the spiritual life of children. If children continue to grow, they turn into young adults. And they start asking questions about their purpose, and they find their place in the family. And now they really can help. They're idealistic and sometimes too easily discouraged, but with continued support and love, they can grow into one day the stage that Paul's at, parents that are reproducing, they're having children. This passage that I'm about to read to you is the perspective of a parent. There may never have been someone who followed Jesus more carefully, more wholeheartedly, with more sincerity, with more zeal than the Apostle Paul. So, when you read this passage, you may say to yourself, I love these things, I believe these things, but I'm not there yet with everything that he says here. If you don't think that's true, I just haven't read far enough in the passage. Let me encourage you. Paul is showing you what full maturity in Jesus looks like, and it's what Jesus is trying to do in the life of every one of his followers. But it's a journey, it's a walk, it's not a sprint it's a long walk. Have you ever been hiking and gone up into the mountains and after maybe two or three hours of slow climbing you finally reach the summit and you look down and you're amazed at your altitude? Ever had that experience? You didn't really notice the altitude gain, you were just taking one step at a time and at the end of the day, you realize you're very high above it all. Why? Because you just took another step. That's how I would encourage you to look at this passage. This is a portrait of what life looks like at the top of spiritual maturity, even though Paul is in prison, and he's sharing his heart with the whole family to picture for them what it looks like and invite everyone to take the next step with him. So in the first half of this passage, he's going to talk about himself, he's going to open up his heart, and he's going to tell them, here's what is in my mind and heart for myself, and at the end, he's going to turn to them as a church and say, here's how you're to live it out. My encouragement to you is to not be discouraged if you find yourself anywhere short of spiritual maturity, but look toward the summit and realize you don't have to reach it today. In fact, you can't, but you can take the next step. Here's how high the spiritual altitude is for Paul. Verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by what? Life "Life or death. See, that's not a slogan. That's not a Christian t shirt that someone thought would sell a lot. That's a guy in prison whose life depends on the whim of a pagan emperor. Life was cheap in the ancient world, especially if you were a Christian. Paul grew up in a world where a woman can dance in front of a wicked man and have him say, what do you want? I'll give you anything, half the kingdom if you want. And she takes counsel with a wicked woman and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And it was done. And a teenage girl saw a human head on a plate. Paul knows that's his environment. He knows these Romans. He's one of their citizens. He knows how fragile his life is. And he says, here's all I am expecting and hoping for. In fact, I'm confident with your prayers and your support, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, here's what I think is going to happen. I'm going to continue to have full courage. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to flinch in the face of death. And I will honor Christ whether by life or by death that is spiritual maturity. When people are spiritually mature, what we do is we honor Christ in all things. That's what it's about. We honor Christ in all things. Whether we live or whether we die, our chief concern is to honor Christ. And that Greek word literally means to make Christ big. If you're honoring Christ, that means that he gets bigger and bigger and you get smaller and smaller. People who are living for Jesus honor Christ in all things. And they do that, Paul says, first by helping others who are coming along behind them find joy in Jesus. Look at Philippians 1 verse 21 now. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Zero in, please, on verse 25. What does Paul say he wants to keep living for? For what purpose? So that they, the Philippians, will make what? Progress and they will have joy in the faith. That's spiritual maturity. Paul says, I want to honor Christ in all things. He's the point. I want him to get bigger. And the one reason I do that is when we live to honor Christ in all things, it won't show up primarily in what we say about Jesus. It'll show up in the attitude we have about others because we will live to help other people find their joy in Jesus Christ. Every single one of you has the opportunity, if you're with christ to help others grow in their faith and find their joy in him parents you have no greater and more sacred responsibility than teaching your children to find joy in jesus christ and to make progress in their faith with him it's a journey it's a walk i try to keep a spiritual dashboard and my spiritual dashboard has idiot lights. Are you familiar with idiot lights? (laughs) If you're not familiar, idiot lights are, are those red lights that suddenly light up on your dashboard. People, gearheads, people who care about cars and know about cars found out a long time ago that most people can't read gauges. They'll just marvel at the pretty little arrows, and if it's buried to the right, meaning that the temperature is volcanic inside their car, they'll pay no attention. So, in their kindness, they gave all of us that aren't like them, that includes me, idiot lights. And an idiot light is a red light that lights up to say, trouble. The idiot light on my spiritual dashboard as I look at my kids especially is, are they finding greater joy and making greater progress in anything more than they find joy and make progress with their Savior, Jesus Christ? I don't mean to exclude the enjoyment of all the other good things that Jesus has given. But if there is more joy to be found elsewhere, if progress matters more in many of the other important good things that God has given into their lives, like academics and athletics and friendships and dating, and all those wonderful stuff God gives teenagers, if there's more progress and more joy there, we may very well have a spiritual crisis. Paul says, what I want is to have full courage. I don't want you to see me flinch and back off. I want to honor Christ in all things so that you, Philippians, will make progress in the faith and have joy in it. Small group leaders, that's exactly where you are when you sit down with a group of people to open up the book of Philippians and look around that room and try to discern where people are around the table. Let's be real about a small group. Most of our groups meet at night, so when people come in, they're tired, they're distracted, they're discouraged. May, they may have just had crushing news somewhere in their life. So that's a sacred moment. Because you've been given a little shepherding responsibility over people who may be getting crushed by life as it is, and your opportunity together as a group, and particularly as a leader, is to help them have an eternal perspective on things and find joy in Jesus and make progress with Him. That's one way we work together to honor Christ in all things. The second one is big, and this is where a lot of us check out. This is the passage where we anyone at the table can profit from it because if you're a spiritual baby, if you're a spiritual baby, this is true about you. But to be able to say it with Christ takes some spiritual maturity. Look at verse 21. Paul said, "For to me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Amen. Whoa." One of my Bible study tips, I was just in Boston, I was teaching people who were about to graduate from Bible college and launch out into vocational ministry. My small group has heard me say this many times, I'll just pass it along to you. You really understand a passage, especially if it's one like this one, a little dense and filled with words, you uh, you get it if you can explain it to an eight-year-old boy. So, how would you explain this passage to an eight-year-old boy? What's Paul saying here? He's saying, I'm hard-pressed between two choices. When I think about my life and my life in this prison, what I hope comes out of it, I feel myself torn between two options. It's summarized by this idea that to to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, but which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You're talking to an eight year old boy. That's a third grader, not a girl, because they're more perceptive and calmer at the age of eight. You're talking to an eight year old boy, and you're going to say, Billy, this is what Paul is saying. What is it? Your turn. It's easier, it's easier to die than it is to live. What are his choices? What are the two things that Paul is torn between? Okay, I heard a cacophony. He doesn't know whether to continue living or to do what? Which does he say is better? To die is better. To serve with Christ. Did you hear that? To die is what? Better. Let's quote the Bible. Die is Gain. See, a lot of us aren't there. Right? Good news, you have cancer. It's hard. What's happening here? You're looking at the summit. Not all of us are there. I'm not at all sure that I'm there. If I get that diagnosis, if I get that conversation, I will believe and swear with all my heart and ultimately find comfort in the truth that to depart and to be with Christ is immediate and it is better. But Paul says the only thing keeping me here is my love for you. I'm torn between two choices. If I stay here, I can help you make progress. I can help you find joy in Jesus. If I die, it's better because I'll be with him that kind of spiritual maturity takes some time. I think it also takes some suffering. Elizabeth Elliot has the beautiful thought that one of the the reasons that God pours suffering into our life is it helps us relax our grip on the things of earth and more willingly release this life so that we may have what is truly good, which is Jesus Christ and eternal life with him. Paul's already there. And he says, if it were up to me, I would rather be with Christ. I'm torn between two options. I would rather stay with you. And that ultimately is what it looks like to make Christ truly honored, to make him look big. We count death as gain because we're going to be with him. That's the assurance. That's the invitation. Understand that. As soon as you trust Jesus as your Savior, from the moment you say, I know that I've sinned and I cannot save myself. Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. You saved me. At that moment, you have Jesus. And at the moment of your death, you will be with him. And that will be for you far better. But to come to the point where you experientially say, I don't know whether I want to draw my next breath. I don't know if I want to stay here because I have such a vision and such a reality of Jesus that I'd rather be with him right now. That takes some spiritual maturity. At the risk of embarrassing him, I'll tell the story because it's the best illustration I know. My father-in-law, who's as godly and self-controlled man as I've ever met, and he just shows it in so many ways. A few years ago, well, actually quite a number of years ago, went for his annual checkup, and I don't know what went wrong in that little lab, but the lab results came back, and they said, sir, you are desperately ill. You have just a short time to get your affairs in order. So, he thought about doing that, he said, but apparently the results were so dire and so bad, they said, but we, we believe you're dying, and it won't be long. So, we want you to know that, but we also want to run the tests again. Well, they ran them again, and I don't know what in the world happened in that lab. He's in perfect health, okay? They went from dead by Tuesday to go enjoy your life. You have many years ahead, okay? So, he's calling his daughter, my wife, thankfully on the other side after the, second phone, after the second test, and he's telling us about going through that, and he said regarding the first test, you know, Recy, because he calls her Recy, and that's his privilege, he's her father, okay? <laughs> he says, you know, Recy, when they told me that, I started getting excited. <laughs> and she said, Dad, that's terrible. What about mom and us kids? And he said, yeah, well, I know, but I would be with Jesus. And I thought to myself, that's how all of us should feel. Am I discounting grief and sorrow and loss? Not at all. It's hard. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, knowing that he was going to bring him back to life in the next five minutes. Death is real and hard, and it hurts, and it can take a lifetime to walk through that grief. But Paul is here telling us the most amazing thing. Because Jesus is so good, and the gospel is so precious, and salvation is so real, to depart from this life and to be with Christ is gain, it's better. And what it really means to be a Christian is to live your life in love for him and service for others so that other people can find the same joy in him that you now understand for yourself. Then Paul says in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now he turns to the church, cross point in a very real way, now he turns to us. I'm telling you all this, what I want most is to honor Christ in all things. The only reason I want to continue living is is that you'll make progress and find joy in Jesus because I've come to understand that dying is actually better because I'm with him, unveiled, unhindered, unrivaled by sin and other things that distract me. I will be with him and he will be with me forever, Paul says. That is the best thing, that is gain. But now that you know this, church, verse 27… Make sure of one thing, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What he literally wrote in Greek is this. He said, behave as worthy citizens. See, the Philippians were really proud of their Roman citizenship. Paul's not saying earn the good news. The good news is a gift from God. He's saying now that you've experienced it, now that you have Christ, live up to it. Live a life that reflects his worth. Live a life so that other people can see how much Jesus means and what a great big difference he makes. Only let your manner of life be, wor- be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, in other words, if they kill me, whether I show up or not, whether I get out of this as I think I will or I never come again, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Here's the next chapter for our church. It's always been Jesus' invitation. We're poised to live it out as never before. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side by, for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. See, they were, being, they were starting to suffer too. The false teachers were saying Paul suffers because he doesn't really know God. If you follow him, you're going to suffer with him. Here's Paul's perspective on suffering. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Watch this. Here's perspective on the suffering that may come to you this year. I don't wish it on you, I don't want it for myself either, but I want to give you perspective on it. Look, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you're a Bible taker and a… if you're a note taker in your Bible, underline that word granted. Every college student and parent of a college student understands that word grant. What would you rather have, a loan or a grant? Why? Grants are free. That's exactly the word here. That Greek word literally means gifted. In other words, suffering is not only to be expected if you follow Jesus. Paul says you have been gifted for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also what? suffer for Him. Belief in Jesus, trusting Him as your Savior, that's God's gift to you. Along with that gift comes the gift of suffering. Why? Because suffering is the sandpaper that polishes you into the image of the Son of God. It is that pressure that slowly relaxes your grip on things that you think are so much more precious and so much more important than Jesus. And I'm saying you, but I mean me. I mean we. I mean all of us. This is the discipleship path for every single one of us. And this gives us tremendous perspective on our role and mission as a church. We make Jesus look big. We honor Christ in all things when we stand and strive together even when we suffer for him. Even when the giving hurts, even when the service is rejected, even when we are misunderstood or lied about, or they say the truth about us and the truth about us and about Jesus is unpopular. If all of those things come to us for the sake of Christ, what Paul says our church will be experiencing at that time is a gift from God, a gift of grace to make you more like him. I mean, he's a good savior. The moment you trust him, he prepares you and makes you worthy and ready for heaven, not because you've been good enough, but because Jesus is good enough. And then he bids you to come with him and to make him the very center and the very source, to surrender everything you have to him, even, in Paul's case, your liberty. So that if that's what it takes for Roman soldiers in the imperial guard to hear about Jesus, you will endure it. And he wants you, he wants me, he wants our church to become a community that loves him so much, has such trust in him that even when suffering comes, we say we understand that not only is our salvation a gift, but suffering for Jesus to lift him up very, very high, this is a gift from his hand as well. Listen, the suffering that may come to my life and to yours in 2016 offers a platform like nothing else for the gospel of Jesus. When people see you on the anvil of suffering and they see you loving and trusting God still and they don't see you back off or turn your back on Jesus because life has become very, very harsh and cruel to you, when you say, I love him, and you say with Job, even if he kills me, I'll still praise him, nobody else does that. Nobody else in the world clings to a person when that person does not appear to be there for them. Most people have a transactional view of life. They expect from everything, including their religion, to get good things out of it. Paul says, my only concern is that in this prison, my courage will not fail. That as I always have in the past, I will continue to love him and trust him. So whether I live or die, he will be honored in all things. So listen, we're not all there yet. No person in a family... No one in a family is as mature as they should be, and none of the members of the family can arrive at maturity at the same time. But this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. You can't reach the summit today, but you can take the next step. What will that look like? If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, may I beg you in the name of Jesus for His sake and for your own to turn to Him right now and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin you died for sin to make me holy, to forgive me. I want you, I trust you, I believe you. Save me. You don't have to have any kind of magic words or a canned prayer. When you move your trust from yourself to him, he will save you. That's the kind of savior he is. And if you're already in that family and you can't say with Paul, Lord, my whole life is about honoring you, take a quiet moment with him and ask him to trust you to help you trust Him in the next thing so that even your suffering can point back to Him. Let's pray together, shall we? Jesus is a real person. He's the Son of God, but He listens and He speaks. So let me just invite you to take a moment with Him to yourself and trust Him with your next step. I'm not talking to you about joining a church. I'm asking you to trust Jesus Christ, the only payment for your sin, the only one who really, truly can save you. He wants to. He died for sin to welcome people into God's family. He takes away guilt and shame. He creates a new identity in the family of God. He died and rose again so that you could say someday that dying actually is a gain because you'll be with him. If you haven't trusted Him, if you're not sure He's your Savior, I would urge you and pray for you in the name of Jesus to make this your moment. And just ask Him. If you do, would you do us the favor of letting us know on that card at the end of the service? We're going to receive communion in a minute, and, and... Later, we're going to receive the offering. At that moment, let us know that you've trusted Christ to save.